What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Oh my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the Prince of Pro Wrestling, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people, and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you're gonna pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Accompanied to the ring by Rip Morgan from Iran, weighing 270 pounds, the Iron Sheik. Ladies and gentlemen, the Iron Sheik, former world champion. And ladies and gentlemen, his opponent from Venice Beach, California. He weighs 251 pounds. He is the following contest it is set for one fall introducing first representing the dangerous alliance and accompanied by the first lady of wcw medusa and the chief executive officer paul e dangerously he's from pittsburgh pennsylvania weighing 244 pounds larry the cruncher zabisco the man they call the Cruncher, the member of the Dangerous Alliance, of course, out with Paul E. and Medusa in one of our feature events. What an exciting hour. We go back to Gary Capetta in the next ring introduction. And ladies and gentlemen, his opponent. He's from Charlotte, North Carolina. He weighs 241 pounds. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat.
is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by our good friends over at Concert Mats. Get on over to ConcertMats.com and find out just how you can turn your most cherished memories into your very own Concert Mat in three easy steps. Again, head on over to ConcertMats.com and turn your one-of-a-kind sports memory, your one-of-a-kind concert memory, take your ticket and turn it into a Concert Mat, a perfect gift for the holiday season for the sports enthusiast in your life and a little bit more about concert mats in just a couple of minutes and if you didn't know by now my name is chad and i don't feel very well today but as always i'm joined by my partner the one and only john paz and john today on the show it would take a lot more to hold me back from doing an intro for the guest we have on today and that is the one and only Gary Michael Capetta, the former lead ring announcer for WCW, the NWA, the World Wrestling Federation, and so many other great promotions, also stops in Ring of Honor, and so on. But Gary Michael Capetta, what an awesome guest for the two-man power trip. Talk about the wheelhouse that we always like to discuss. But Gary Michael Capetta's time in both the World Wrestling Federation and the NWA is a majority of what our discussion starts with and ends with. But all the stops in between, including, like I said, that Ring of Honor run of Gary Michael Capetta is covered And when you think about Gary Michael Capetta, you think about what I like to consider an untapped resource of historical proportions because he was around so many key and influential people in the legacy, uh, the overall lineage of professional wrestling, not just one singular family, but that starts us off with the McMahon family. And yes, he did work for both Vincent Kennedy McMahon, but also his father, Vince McMahon Sr., who is known to be one of the most respected and one of the most beloved promoters from the fellas of that, of that era. And Gary Michael Capetta definitely has some great things to say about Vince McMahon Sr., but also about Gorilla Monsoon, who kind of took him under his wing and really made him his personal announcer for the Philadelphia territory. And if you remember some of those old Spectrum Wrestling shows from the early 80s, Gary Michael Capetta is the voice of the Philadelphia Spectrum. And we get into a lot of that, and that's actually my personal favorite era of professional wrestling, that early 1980s World Wrestling Federation time where Gary Michael Capetta is on all those big spectrum wrestling shows. But John, as I welcome you in here, why don't you talk about how that relationship with Gorilla Monsoon opened up the door for the World Wrestling Federation. And definitely, I know one of your favorite questions is that comparison between Vince McMahon Sr. and Vince McMahon Jr. And it was definitely given a great response by GMC, Gary Michael Capetta. And uh, why don't you tell us how all that came about and how we ended up getting one of the best ring announcers of his era. Yes, Chad, back here again for another awesome episode at the two-man power trip of wrestling. And guess what? We have an awesome one for you today. That's right, GMC, Gary Michael Capetta, WCW legend, ring announcer extraordinaire, best-selling author, the man who started the one-man show, Craze. But Chad, first, I gotta say, you sound terrible. I gotta be honest, I'm not sure you got, if you got laryngitis or what you got going on there, but you absolutely sound terrible. But I know how pumped you were and how pumped we were to get this episode out, so you had to bully your way through it and get it done, and I admire you for that, and I love it, even though you sound pretty damn bad here on the airway. But that's okay. But uh, as I digress, let's talk about GMC, the legend himself, Gary Michael Capetta. One thing that I love about 
this interview and love when you get to talk to him or when you get to read his book he's got the best stories and you think about how the hell did he get started in the business like where did he start where are all these awesome stories emanating from what's the origin of it and it all goes back to one man gorilla monsoon an absolute legend in the business obviously a legendary wrestler a legendary announcer the voice of the wwf for a very long time obviously he's the former owner of the wwf at one point and obviously an absolute icon if you are any sort of fan of the business you know who gorilla monsoon is you love the gorilla man you know all about the gorilla position being named after him so great stuff all about gorilla and i just love that story that uh, gmc tells about basically how gorilla monsoon not only got in he got him into the business but got him this uh you know position or that position all because gmc is a talent and a hell of a ring announcer he's got a hell of a voice but obviously he had that relationship with gorilla monsoon and that went a long way and i thought that was very very cool and a very cool part of the story and of course when you're talking about somebody that was around all the way back when gorilla monsoon was kind of calling some shots obviously that means vince senior also played a big role and i love getting into that vince jr versus vince senior question it's one of my favorite questions because you don't run into a lot of guys that work for both guys obviously you know we had on bruno he worked for both i mean and there's several other guys that that worked for both guys but with gary marco it was very interesting because vince senior seemed to be on his side or seemed to be a uh close i wouldn't say confidant but seemed like he liked him and preferred him and definitely would book him a lot and it seemed like there was some animosity with vince jr and gmc and we go into that in the interview and we get some really good stuff and a really good story about both guys and i just thought that was a real fascinating question a question that i just love to ask because there is a difference between vince senior and junior and i just love to think what each of our guests thinks about that and boy does gary Magpeta talk about leaving the WWF back then kind of when Vince took over we talk about Howard Finkel we talk about David Penzer we talk about a lot of good stuff from GMC and this was just a, a fascinating ride through professional wrestling history and obviously you heard off the top of the episode a couple of the classic clips of Gary Michael Capetta in action during his time in the NWA where he was able to introduce some huge names some Hall of Famers and like you heard, the ones that you, that he mentioned, Larry Zabisco, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and of course the one that John's going to get into, the man known as Sting, which Gary Michael Capetta gave the old trademark entrance for Sting that he carried all the way through his last run in the WWE. And with Gary Michael Capetta, we cannot forget the book that he wrote called Body Slams, the story of a wrestling pitch man where he was really one of the first guys post McFoley to come out with the, you know, quote, tell-all book. And even though it's not a dirt book, per se, it still was a tell-all book because there were not many writers or authors of the time of pro wrestling books that were giving you the inside look into wrestling, how Gary Michael Capetta saw it and how he experienced it. And he really gave everyone a great look into that time in the late 70s and the early 80s with the WWF and then the heyday of the NWA. And then, of course, like I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, his time with Ring of Honor. John and I went to many a Ring of Honor shows where Gary Michael Capetta 
was stationed as the backstage interviewer and was such a great tie-in to those stars that went on to become mega, mega superstars in the world of professional wrestling like Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe and AJ Styles. And it's just so cool to see where they all came from those early Ring of Honor days. But, John, talk about the origins of the Sting intro and how much you love it because I know that is what the question was on the tippy-top of your tongue as we waited to talk to GMC and definitely touch on the Ring of Honor time of Gary Michael Capetta as well. Yeah, Chad, you're right. I mean, you can't talk about GMC, Gary Michael Capetta, without talking about WCW. Obviously, a lot of people consider him, at at a point in time, the voice of WCW, obviously before David Pender came, and then obviously you had Michael Buffer and so on and so forth. But GMC was the voice of WCW for a while, and you just loved his voice and he really got into it and he was such a key role when you kind of don't realize it but the ring announcer plays such a key role nowadays is kind of not as important and they just have any old girl doing the ring announcing or or they have to look good or, or whatever i mean you got jojo out there very attractive girl but i mean does she really have the voice to be the ring announcer so many of these women that just aren't hitting the mark or even some of the guys nowadays the ring announcers aren't quite hitting that mark but when you think about that perfect voice. Penzer was good. I, li- I liked Penzer a lot. Obviously, former guest of the show. I loved the Fink, Howard Finkel, just one of the greatest all-time voices. And then you throw GMC into the mix. He had one of the great all-time voices. And that's what you remember about wrestling. And, and you remember those simple phrases that the ring announcer could say to get you pumped up either for an entrance or for the win. And I can't help but think of when you get pumped up for the entrance, GMC's This Is Sting! I mean, just perfect execution just love that got you so pumped up made you love sting even more and what was interesting about this is we go into why it was this this thing it wasn't just sting and i thought that was a really cool fascinating story and just shows you some of the uh the psychology that even the ring announcers show so really really cool and i love gmc's time in wcw i thought he was just a perfect fit for them and he just has an amazing voice and amazing talent and he, he just went a long way to making WCW you know, that much better at that point. I mean, I'm a huge, huge WCW fan through and through. I, I loved it, especially Sting on. I mean, you just had to have loved WCW. But also, we do get into his time in ROH. I don't know if a lot of people remember that. He was the backstage announcer for Ring of Honor for a little bit, which was very, very cool. And a great homage to have a wrestling legend not just do the ring announcing, but do the backstage announcing. And we talked to GMC about why he wasn't the ring announcer for ROH, which is a pretty cool story as well. So, I mean, we go through the gamut here. We go WWF, WCW, ROH, and everywhere in between. This is a really, really fun interview with a really, really good storyteller. Without a doubt, and we want to thank Gary Michael Capetta for taking the time to come on the show and give us a great interview and an absolutely classic two-man power trip of wrestling interview because we get to cover that old-school time and we get to cover some of those untold stories that I know the newer generation of fans, if you're educating yourself for the first time, a great place to start is by listening to Gary Michael Capetta, and I want to thank everybody for bearing with me while we get through these couple of minutes here leading into the interview. I did sound a thousand percent better, if I do say so myself, uh, while we recorded Gary Michael Capetta. And of course, in the United States, this is Thanksgiving week, and we've got a great show on tap for you this coming Thursday for Thanksgiving. And we definitely want to thank all the listeners and everybody who participated up to this point in the calendar year 
And we also want to thank ConcertMats.com for being a sponsor. And we want to really urge you to get on over to ConcertMats.com if you have to get somebody a really cool and really unique holiday gift. Make sure it's a concert mat. Take one of their tickets. Get one of those classic NWA ticket stubs that you've got. Send it over to ConcertMats.com. And in three easy steps, you can get a one-of-a-kind concert mat that you can throw inside of a man cave. Hell, throw outside your garage. Throw it outside your front door. Get it in the eye of somebody coming through because when they look down and see the concert mat, they are going to absolutely flip the vibrant colors, the detail, the imagery. They do an amazing job, and I definitely hope that people check out ConcertMats.com and get on over there and get yourself a -a one-of-a-kind holiday gift. And John, as you hear the music start to creep in, hit them with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to our boy, our man, GMC, Gary Michael Capetta. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on iTunes, check out the feed for past legendary episodes featuring the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, Bruno San Martino, Jesse the Body Ventura, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, WWE Lead Attorney, Jerry McDivitt, The Phenomenal AJ Styles, The Demon Kane, Dean Ambrose, and so many more. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. Also, while you're surfing the web, go to wrestlinginc.com. Yes, that is wrestlinginc.com, your number one news source for professional wrestling and sports entertainment. Also, please check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com for your t-shirt needs. Featuring stores like our own store at the two-man power trip of wrestling, Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Magnum TA, Paul Orndorff, Kevin Thorne, and Buff Bagwell. Also, for you Android users out there, check us out on Player FM. Now, without any further ado, a man who's done it all in professional wrestling. He actually started the one-man show phenomenon. He is a best-selling author and one of the greatest ring announcers of all time. This is GMC, Gary Michael Capetta. Please enjoy. tonight is one of the more memorable faces of the early days of WCW in the late days of the NWA. You also, if you're a New Jersey-based or a Philadelphia-based wrestling fan, you will remember him from his days in the Philadelphia Spectrum, as well as the great Meadowlands Arena. He is the man with the golden tongue. From my perspective, he is the man himself, the world's most dangerous ring announcer. He is Gary Michael Capetta. Thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. I appreciate it. Now, don't forget Ring of Honor. I, in the early days of Ring of Honor, I was their backstage interviewer. So that was the probably the most recent um, thing I did with their DVD um, series. 
Oh, yes. Uh, we'll definitely be getting into the Ring of Honor days because uh, we used to hang out in those bleachers. We used to hang out at those early Ring of Honor shows, and we would, uh, we would watch you get in the ring, do a couple things with the crowd, and we would eat up those DVDs. We'd see all your action on there. And that was what a collection of talent that ended up being. But like I said, we'll get into that. And kind of that same vein I want to start around there, and that is around 2004, you were dabbling in Ring of Honor. Uh, you had just written a book called Body Slams. Um, you were on the Body Slams tour, and then kind of, you know, we, we really didn't see Gary Michael Capetti anymore. Did you leave the business actively, or uh, was it something you needed a break from, or is this just now you getting back into uh, the professional wrestling scene, you know, now here in 2016? I, I went back into education. I, I, I began teaching again. Um, throughout all of my years with what was then the WWF, I, I taught school, even when I was on their weekly broadcasts. Um, so for those 11 years, I was in the classroom during the week, in the daytime, and then at night and then on weekends, I would travel and, and do the ring announcing. Um, same thing with when I was with the AWA and we did the ESPN show. Um, that was in Atlantic City, the beginning of that whole project, and so I was able to continue to teach. It wasn't until I started WCW that I left education. So, you know, for most of those years, those early years, I was teaching. And the years that you're talking about, um, it just so happened. I got a call from a school where I had taught. They had a need. They asked if I would come back. And that's what I did until uh, last year. So I, and I, it's, uh, yeah. that was where my focus was. Yeah, and it was just, it was so cool to see you at those shows and, uh, you know, to get to talk to you for a couple of minutes and uh, to see you kind of, you know, be infused with that talent that was going on in Ring of Honor at the time. And uh, you look back at that roster and you see these guys that went on to become megastars like uh, Brian Danielson or Samoa Joe or CM Punk. And you see what they were then. And they were getting good then. And you see what they are now. And now they are absolute, you know, like I said, megastars. Did you see that crop of guys being a success and, and really excelling the way they did all these years later? Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to work with them. Um, I had heard about them, and I regularly, you know, a few times a year, I'll go out to an indie show. And um, I had heard about Ring of Honor. They were in Philadelphia. It wasn't too far for me. Um, I uh, went to a show, and I was so impressed at what I saw. Um, Styles was, was, on, on those, uh, uh, was on the roster, too. And... Um, uh, I called up Gabe. Gabe Sapolsky was the booker at the time, and I s just told him. I just congratulated him. I just said, "This is, this is terrific." I said, "There are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of um, veterans, uh, guys that aren't in wrestling anymore, and they have nothing good to say about what's going on today. And it's, they really have lost perspective. And I, I would say that it's uh, pro wrestling is different today." to a certain degree, but what will make it successful are the same elements that made it successful in the past. It's just packaged differently. So I, I called him up and I, and I said, I'll help you in any way that I can. Um, the only thing that I do not want to do is what I'm known for, which is ring announce. So I don't need to be on camera. I help, you know, behind the scenes or whatever. I don't, I don't want a payday. I just, I just am enthusiastic about what you're doing. So he called me a couple of weeks later, and he had the idea of me doing backstage um, interviews. And I think in the years that I worked with Ring of Honor, there were a couple of times 
Um, he may have had like a special main event, and he said, Garrett, like, can I ask a favor? Like, would you do the ring announce for that match? And I think I did a, a couple of them, but just a couple. Um, and then he would have me go in the ring and maybe do an interview in the ring. But I, I just wanted to a departure from what I was done for 21 years. I just wanted something different than ring announcing. So, yeah, I, I had a great time. Um, and, and it's, you know, people who have had success in pro wrestling, if you really love pro wrestling, I think you have an obligation to give back to the next generation. So, um, you know, at that time we were refining um, interview skills of guys like Brian Danielson and um, or Daniel Bryan, I think his name became, um, AJ Styles and CM Punk and Colt Cabana. <clears throat> you know, that, that's when they were starting. And to be on the ground floor of their careers, you know, that, that's, just, that, that's just very rewarding. The uh, the list is nearly endless when you go back and look at those early Ring of Honor days and like we said you know Daniel Bryan Samoa Joe Christopher Daniels was in there even though he was like the veteran of the group and like you said AJ Styles and Homicide and even Austin Aries all these guys that were coming through the ranks and to have somebody like Gabe Sapolsky who had learned under the Paul Heyman tree and took his talents into Ring of Honor and now has even gone on past Ring of Honor to be a superstar with his Evolve group, you know, he's just a guy, whatever he touched turns to gold. But how was it working with Gabe uh, and seeing him grow as a leader backstage with his group? Gabe was um, extremely um, in control, in like self-controlled. I don't know what was going on inside the guy, <laughs> but it just, like there was, there never seemed to be any kind of chaos in any way. Um, I knew exactly what he wanted. I knew I tried to deliver what he wanted, um, what went on in, you know, individual conversations he may have had. If there were any, like, political problems, I'm not aware of them. But um, they they were a very, very good um, group to work with. I, I just, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And that was such an interesting time in the business because WCW had been gone for a couple of years and ECW had been gone, so there was a new startup that needed to kind of uh, move forward. And TNA was still in its early days as well. And TNA, you know, albeit still around uh, at this point, you know, maybe uh, hanging on by a thread, you know, Ring of Honor still flourishing. But you yourself there, and I think about that time, and you're, you had put out your book around 2000. Uh, you were really one of the first after Mick Foley to have a wrestling book on the market that really, I'd say, uh, kind of brought us into the modern era and the TV guys that, you know, the, the people buying the books were really consuming. And to take on something like putting out your book, Body Slams, the memoirs of a, what was it, memoirs of a wrestling pitch man, you know, you really kind of, I got to say, it was, it was a cool look inside that era, that 80s era, where it really took off. And to see both aspects of both companies that were just dominant in the 1980s. But what was it like to put that book together, and how long did you really uh, put the uh, the idea of it on pen to paper? I didn't um, start out with the intention of writing a book. When I came off the road with WCW, it was a difficult adjustment. I was on the road for 20 days a month, and, and to come back and for that all to um, be behind me, um, I just started to write some uh, thoughts and um, I didn't write anything while I was announcing, while I was working for them. I, I didn't have a plan to write a book. But then the more that um, I started, it more and more just came out. 
and um, and for two years, um, I sat home and I wrote. And I, w- I wasn't teaching. I wasn't announcing. That was my full time job, and uh, I loved it. It, w- it was it was a wonderful. Uh, I guess of all my professions, like in in some ways, that's my favorite because you have total control over what you do, and when you do it. Um, unfortunately, unlike McFoley, I wasn't a, a weekly television celebrity, so I had difficulty in finding a publisher. And um, so the first edition of Body Slams, I self-published. And I did a pretty good job, especially for the infancy of the Internet, in gaining interest in the book. I started in in the spring in uh, releasing press releases. And the book came out in um, October. Um, And it it did great. It It was the first book written of that era, that you characterized properly, but it was the second one to come out because Mick Foley's came out first. And then uh, it did so well that five years later, uh, ECW Press contacted me and they wanted to put it out under their banner. So I said, yeah, I'll do that, but I want to add to it. I want to add chapters to it. I want, you know, so there, um, there's an insight as to the difficulty of marketing wrestling, which I learned from setting up the book tour, um, I would I would try to get um, auto rental companies and hotels to support my book tour because you know that's what I was going to be using rental cars and and uh, hotel rooms, and they had absolutely no um, insight as to you know the massive following that wrestling has. Um, it was more like uh, the publishers would think uh, wrestling fans don't read. And I was like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> like they, and and there was just a total disconnect. So I just financed it myself. Um, but then when ECW Press um, asked me to put uh, to put the book out, I added chapters. Um, I added Ring of Honor to it, um, and I also there's it's not a slam book. So there's very little that I said that was totally negative about any one particular individual, and anything that slanted that way i witnessed personally so there i'm not like telling stories that i heard somewhere um but what i did was i contacted anyone who um i wasn't 100 percent positive about or positive about something that they did and i allowed them to write a rebuttal and that's part of the current body slams book um mick foley wrote jim Cornette wrote um, you know, a couple of other people responded, and I just let it sit. I didn't, I didn't come back. I just Jim Cornette happened to be absolutely correct. I, I had mischaracterized someone who had attacked him at, at ringside as a young guy, as an old guy, and um, Jim was furious. Yeah, but we're friends, you know. So, he, <laughs> so I just said to him, "Yeah," I said, "So, you know, give you know, write for me, you know, write something, and and I'll include it in the second edition of the book." And the book continues to sell well. Um, it's it's my best seller when I go to conventions still, so um, kind of amazes me, but it it pleases me too. Oh, it's uh, it's excellent. It's one of those books, you know, when it was uh, when it was first released uh, out in the stores, when I mean, you could get it in a Barnes and Noble, you know, it's always one of those go tos, and uh, it, it definitely, I mean, not only just with stories, but you know, you also had some really cool. 
uh, unique pictures in there. But I, what I can recall is is the honesty uh, and the story that you have from starting off as a fan and kind of getting yourself into the business is what I think really uh, really stood out. And like I said, you know, the, just the raw nature of your feelings about your career and you know putting that like I said pen to paper earlier like that's a that's a kind of trying thing but being such a wrestling fan and being uh, a lover of the business uh, I guess it gets to be pretty easy when you reflect upon your career but what was it that got you started as a wrestling fan uh, growing up um, what is there that I connected to with wrestling I'm not absolutely sure um, I, I just know that when I first started when I first saw this on TV, I thought it was something I shouldn't be watching. Like when I was in sixth grade, it was, uh, if anyone was around, I'd, I'd turn it off. Um, because what I saw as uh, a little kid back then was uh, these scantily clad men that were sweating, rolling around in the middle of a, of a lit area in a darkened arena. <laughs> now to me, <laughs> you know, it, it just depends on, on your perspective. It, People need to understand, well, first off, when they read Body Slams, they need to understand that it was the core of it was written in 2000, and then the edition was added in 2005. So you need that perspective, which is different from, you know, today, obviously. But when you ask someone of my era what drew me to wrestling, people who, younger people need to understand that it, it was not a glitzy, glamorous um competition or uh, a spectacle at all there was no music there was just sometimes a light bulb over a ring you know it was a little dingy and dark it was different so i don't know really what attracted me maybe just the craziness of it and it was just like wow this is this is pretty cool just because it's crazy because then i um, I tuned in and I saw women doing the same thing. And then I tuned in another time and I saw uh, four midgets doing the same thing. And it was like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. And, and, and for those, once again, old timers that say, oh, it, you know, um, what's happening today, some of what's happening today is like totally unrealistic. Well, you know, we had characters like the Beast. And when Gorilla Monsoon started, he didn't speak English. He was from, you know, Manchuria, so you know it, it was it was wacky. So I, I guess that's what what drew me to it. I never had an intention of becoming part of it. Even when I started announcing, I never had an intention of becoming part of it. But as far as as a fan, it was just it was just very strange. It was like an underground thing, and <laughs> and at that time you didn't walk around saying, "Oh yeah, I'm a pro wrestling fan." You didn't. That it was like a subculture, and um, so the only time you can talk about pro wrestling, unless you had a buddy that was also you found out somehow was interested, was going to the matches because you didn't have an internet to to discuss things. You, you didn't have any way of communicating with anybody. So um, yeah, I I guess just because it was it was you know kind of wacky. That's that's what drew me to it. Now, you mentioned Gorilla Monsoon. He would become a big part of your career. But how did he actually end up getting into the wrestling business, this wacky world with these larger-than-life characters and women wrestlers and midgets? How did you actually get into the wrestling business? It was, it was, just, uh, it was just so uh, simple back then in the sense that they didn't have an announcer. I went to – it was in June. I went to a Wildwood 
New Jersey, which is a shore town in New Jersey, at their convention hall, and they didn't have an announcer. And I volunteered, and that's how I started. Without all the details, but that's essentially that's what happened. <clears throat> and what role did Gorilla Monsoon play in your career? Because, you know, he played a pretty vital role in it and in what you would become. Well, at the, at the time when I started, he was a co-owner of the um, Worldwide Wrestling Federation. And I didn't know that. I didn't even know he was a promoter at the time. I just, even when I started announcing, I just thought he was a wrestler. Because I, I didn't, um, I didn't communicate with him. I communicated with uh, the guy at the time who was the president of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, like the Jack Tunney of the of the um, 80s and 90s. Willie Gilsenberg was the guy of the 70s and the 80s. So um, I didn't even know Monsoon was an owner. And the summer that I volunteered, I had just graduated from college. And that fall, I started teaching. And Monsoon called me and asked me, because all I was doing was that one arena, which in the summer, because it was a vacation destination, was a weekly stop for WWF. So he called me in the fall and he said, would you like to continue to, you know, to, to work with me? So I said, sure. So I, I started teaching and I started full, not full time, but I started my announcing at the same time. Um, and I would, I would do two to three shows a week just in New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania and Delaware, um, which is kind of amazing when you think about the amount of, um, work that there was for someone like myself. So, and, and the more that I did it, the better I got at it. And because I was his full-time guy, um, others who might have wanted to do it didn't get an opportunity. And the only way you're going to get good at anything is to do it. Um, and then I come to learn that he was a co-owner, that two years later he asked me if I was interested in doing their TV show. So um, two years after I started, he put me on TV, and I was on weekly TV for the rest of my 11 years with them. Um, so he was my guardian angel. He was he was everything. Um, and I fell out of favor with the organization when he lost his, um, at, at a certain point, Vinny Jr. bought out his partners. So when Monsoon lost his power, I lost my position. And what would you say is the difference between Vince Sr. and Vince Jr.? Because, you know, Knuckle can say that they were basically on the fringe of working for both guys at, at one point. Um, Vince Sr., um, you know, deep down I don't know that there was that much difference, but um, on the outside, uh, Vince Sr. was always very um, – very well dressed. He was a gentleman, um, very low key. Um, now his son, who's junior, when I started, he was the commentary. He was a commentator, and he was he was bold and he was brash and he was, uh, you know, he didn't even acknowledge my existence. Pretty much, I mean, every TV taping, he was sitting ten feet away from the ring in which I was announcing, and he never acknowledged me. He never mentioned my name. Um, I only talked to him uh, three times in 11 years, 
and two of those times he fired me. So you know, we didn't have a very close relationship, but they were hmm. very different individuals. One was bold and brash, and he was probably in his late 20s, Vinnie Jr. That's how far back I'm going. Um, there was one time when I asked Senior for a raise, and, um, you know, I was, I was in my uh, mid-20s, and I was pretty nervous about it, but I thought I should be making more money. And he looked at me and he said, I can't do that because I can't afford it. <laughs> and that was, I was just speechless. So I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I walked out of the little room that they were in um, at TV. But, you, you know, at the end of the night, I got the raise that I asked for and it continued every time. So it was just like he couldn't tell me that I was doing a good job. He couldn't acknowledge it. That was the one thing that I thought was pretty poor about their management style. It was like they needed to control you. So if they told you, wow, you're doing a good job, well, maybe we'd put some idea in your head that you're worth more um, or that you should you know, get a certain benefit that you didn't have. So they just kept you under their thumb. Um, that's the way they did business back then. I have no idea you know, how they conduct business person to person now. I don't know if it's much different or you know, it could be very different. I can only speak to uh, what I knew at the time. And that era of wrestling is so, you know, they, they call it the golden era, you know, for a reason because all those larger-than-life characters. But like you said, Vince Jr. himself was almost like a larger-than-life character, you know, within himself and slowly trying to, you know, buy all the partners and take over and, create the WWF into what it became. But before I, you know, we skip over that, I just want to rewind a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with a guy like George Animal Steel? You know, right now, obviously, he, he has his health issues, and hopefully, you know, he's going to get better and everything else. But what was your relationship like with a guy like George Animal Steel, who truly was larger than life? I had no relationship with him. I wanted no relationship with him, because he scared <laughs> the hell out of me. Um, he, uh, people like Baron Cicluna, like Jimmy Snuka, like uh, Peter Maivia, who's The Rock's grandfather, um, George Steele, back then, they, uh, I think I entertained them, <laughs> because I was, I was just very serious and earnest with what I was doing. And they used me as a prop, because their characters were so contrary to who I was, that, uh, like, George Steele would uh, chase me out of the ring all the time. He attacked me the very first... The reason that I used to run was because the guy attacked me. He he, he came from behind, and he just uh, uh, body-blocked me, and I was on the ground underneath him. And he was. I used to wear a, a carnation boutonniere all the time, and I still do when I do guest spring announcing. And, you know, he, he would just eat my, my carnation. So anytime he would come near the ring, I'd, I'd be out of there, whether I had finished my announcement or not. And the people like used to look forward to that, and they hated him more, and they felt sorry for me. Um, Jimmy Snooker did the same kind of thing where he tried to, one night, for instance, he tried to undress me in the ring, take my pants off. Another time he, he stole my carnation and he chewed it up and spit it in my face. But for somebody who, and I think that was one of the problems that the McMahons had with me, even though I didn't initiate any of it, hmm. but it drew attention to me. And things, uh, I stuck in people's minds because it was just 
for this, I guess, the same reason that I got interested in wrestling. It was bizarre, you know, that this very conservative-looking little guy would have confrontations with these animals. <laughs> hmm. So um, while it was um, challenging at the time, and I really was afraid of steel for years, um, it it elevated my um, my position in a way. I don't know how else to put it. If people knew that I was ring announcing at a certain place and they knew Steele was going to be there, what's going to happen now? Because we see this on television every week. So, um, yeah, they used me as a prop. And it worked out to my advantage, you know, because it just drew attention to me. I would I would never have drawn attention to myself. But that's one of the reasons why, you know, people definitely love the wrestling business because those, like you said, those little weird things or those things that are unpredictable that you you don't see coming. And the one time that you got knocked out, like what, what was that? Like what actually happened to occur to make that happen? Oh, uh, that Iron Mike Sharp knocked me out. Um, he actually didn't knock me out. He knocked me out of the ring. Um, that was at the Philadelphia Spectrum. And to tell you the truth, I think this was my uh, the beginning of my downfall <laughs> in the eyes of uh, Vinny, because uh, he was I think he was there that night. Um, he didn't usually come to Philly, but I think he was. He, if he wasn't there, he definitely heard about it. And um, uh, Iron Mike Sharp lost the match and didn't think he should have lost the match. So I'm coming in the ring to um, announce his loss. And he took off after me, and he used to wear a um, a leather band around his forearm. And he may have connected with my face, but, it, I mean, he knew what he was doing. So he he didn't knock me out. But when I fell out, um, my head hit the railing as I flew through the air into the, into the first, into the ringside. And, and so I just was knocked out. And... Um, and at that point, it, it was at a time when I was a little frustrated about how um, I was um, being undervalued, I thought. And, um, and I really made a decision as I lay there, and there were doctors around me, and they put smelling salts under my nose, and um, I, I was coming to, and Phil Zacco, who was the quintessential old-school wrestling promoter, short, fat Italian guy with a big cigar who had a, who was just nasty. And he was standing over me with the next month's card. He was standing, you know, with his paper, and he's saying, come on, kid, come on, kid, get up, kid, you got to get in and announce the next card. And, I'm, and you know, it, to myself, I just said, F you. <laughs> because, you know what, you, you treat me like I have no importance, and now all of a sudden I'm important? So, um... <laughs> I just let them carry me out. <laughs> hmm. I could have, honestly, I could have gotten up and continued. But, but then I also thought, well, you know what? You're also always talking about protecting the business. So what sense does it make when you have your giant Iron Mike Sharp knock me out, and then I'm going to just get up and continue announcing? That doesn't make any sense right. either. Yep. So uh, <laughs> that, that was, the, it was a few months later. That was one of the times that Vinny talked to me. He came to the spectrum, not for this reason, I'm sure, but... Um, called me out of the ring in the middle of an introduction. I was actually talking to the people about the next card, and I got flagged out of the ring by a guy by the name of Phil uh, Mel Phillips. Uh, now I'm thinking 
something happened at home. My father died. So, like something happened. And I get back and he just looks at me and said, we don't need you anymore. <laughs> I said, okay, is there something that I did? No, no, nothing that you did. I said, are you firing me from here or are you firing me, you know, from WWF? He said, no, no, just from this building. I said, oh, okay. And so, and I think, that I, I think it was, all right, this kid gets knocked out. And then he doesn't get up and he doesn't, you know, make the announcement and all this attention is coming to him and screw him. We don't need him. And and I think that's I think that was what happened. But I don't know, because he wouldn't tell me he didn't have a reason. And he didn't. He was the boss. He didn't need to have a reason. There's an, there's an expression that says, I don't have to be right. I just have to be the boss. <laughs> so I never you know. One of the things. I never announced. I'm sorry. That's OK. Yeah, and you know. And you know, and that's kind of where uh, that's where I was. You know, I've been thinking the whole time you got on here. I wanted to talk about that Philadelphia Spectrum because I always think about when I first saw Philadelphia Spectrum and Spectrum Wrestling. I heard your voice, but one thing John and I always talk about are how the the old school arenas had their individual announcers. And was there any theory behind that, or was it just simply uh, the venue had its own specific guy, its own specific voice? But, you know, when we think about it, we break it down, you know, Boston Gardens had their own, you know, Maple Leaf Gardens had their own. Uh, we think about Howard Finkel at Madison Square Garden. I think about you when I think about Philadelphia. But was there any theory behind it, or was it just uh, something that, you know, all the, uh, the promotions did back then? Well, um, once again, I was, I was aligned with Gorilla Monsoon, and um, that was part of his territory. People like Gorilla Monsoon, Angelo Savoldi, Arnold Skolin, um, Phil Zacco had a small piece. They had their piece of the territory. So whenever there was wrestling in mid to South Jersey, Philadelphia, Delaware, Monsoon was in charge. And then in other areas like um, New York, um, the boroughs of New York, Arnold Skolin was in charge. In New England, it was Angelo Savoldi. So they had their, you know, they each had their own announcers. Um, in Philadelphia, I can't speak to the other um, – New York was probably like this too. Um, but they had state athletic commissions, and um, I wasn't even legal to work to announce in Pennsylvania because I didn't live in Pennsylvania. But everybody had to be licensed. Um, if, if From the guy that sold tickets in the box office to the referee to the announcer to every wrestler to the promoter, Everybody had to be licensed, and you paid a, a yearly fee. It was, it was nominal. Um, I think because I was an intruder that they still had their, um, you know, it was politics. So they still had their state-assigned announcer. I was brought in with the promotion, even though I was licensed. But um, so, therefore, there would always be someone else that I was announcing with. So I would come in, and I would look at the card, and if there were, let's say there were 10 matches, I would, I would give the information to the state announcer for four of the matches, and I would do six of the matches. And that's pretty much how it happened. But it was because it was a, an athletic commission assigned job. Now, do you like that more, though, that structure of having a voice identified with a venue? Because... When you think back to those, uh, you know, some of those matches of that era, I mean, it really, it's, it's just as key as the finish is 
the announcement, uh, both at the beginning and at the end, do you think that that's something that uh, if we could dial it back to the old era, that was something that we could bring towards uh, the forefront today? I think it's healthy to have um, for each venue to have an identity, for, you know, for each of the large venues to have an identity. And, um, you know, they would have more local referees. And um, even though... I never sold a ticket. No one ever came to a wrestling show. Never, no one ever tuned in to see wrestling because Gary Michael Capetta was the announcer. Um, it's, it is important to have good support personnel. And, um, but people, at least back then, it was like home. It was like a clubhouse. Maybe it's even that's even a better a better way to look at it. It's like a clubhouse, and so anything that's familiar makes you feel better, makes you feel more welcome. And if that announcer or that referee, because you couldn't get close to the wrestlers, um, acknowledged you in some way, it made you feel included. So I think in that way, for um, a venue to have an identity, um, yeah, it, I, I think it's a very positive thing. It's just something that always struck me as uh, as one of the more interesting parts of, you know, as the, for for me and John, it would be that era that just came before, you know, we were watching, and it was really the first that we would go to look for because some of the stars that were kind of up-and-comers were now starting to establish themselves a little bit down the road. And we saw the transition from Vince Sr. into Vince Jr., and, you know, you kind of covered that a little bit. But when you talk about – that era and the guys that were working backstage and you talk about Monsoon and Phil Zacco. Uh, do you think that old guard did work out that, you know, well that they had uh, kind of established generals in each place, you know, it's kind of in the same vein as the announcers. Do you think that territorial system worked uh, and was successful, especially if it was one territory having multiple spots like Boston, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, do you think that that was a successful business model for that era? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, just look at the success of business. I mean, every every um, most opinion questions that you're going to ask me um, is always going to boil down to money and business. And I mean, Vince Senior was very successful in um, in how he ran his territory. Um, there's no doubt about it. So um, yeah, and I just think it was more. Um, obvious to those that were really like connected into pro wrestling back then but if you think about it i mean if you have a business and it's a national it's a it's a regional business as big as the northeast or the mid-south or florida florida's you know it's it's a very large territory you need local people to keep on top of what's going on as far as publicity as far as how are ticket sales going like one person to control all of that um, I don't think that works too well. I mean, even even if you're looking at like a national tour of a rock band, if you're looking at the circus, um, obviously they have a, a staff of hundreds, and um, they probably are divided into territories and geographic territories, you know, to keep track of what's going on um, with sales, and to be sure that the proper merchandise arrives at the building and all kinds of things. One person couldn't do it all. This was just. Very, this was just that the territory, the people that ran different parts of the territory were also part owners of the organization. I think that was the difference. Definitely. And you think about that era, and you just think about pro wrestling in general, and you think about ring announcers, I think a lot of people think 
CMC, and they think Howard Finkel. When you think of like the top echelon of the greatest, you know, ring announcers of all time, what is your relationship, or what was your relationship with Howard Finkel, or do you never actually, you know, ever have a relationship with the Fink? Um, I did have a relationship with the Fink. Um, it's interesting because we feel—I'll speak for Howard. Um, I, I think we feel like we're. Um, friendlier than one would expect because every event only needs one ring announcer. So we were, it's not that we saw each other often, but I saw him a year and a half ago at a convention. And um, he asked if we could take a picture together, and we did. Um, It was, we have a, I think we have a, a, a very deep mutual respect more than a friendship because we didn't really spend a lot of time together there wasn't that and then when when i went from announcing for the wwf and then awa nwa and wcw he was full-time in titan towers you know for the wwf so we were on you know opposite sides and there were a lot of suspicions back then and you just didn't i mean if if you were um friendly with someone from the opposition you didn't really broadcast it you didn't like let it be known because because you would have possibly been labeled or suspected of being a traitor it's it was it was very tense so yeah but we we were very friendly through uh through the whole through the whole time but yeah if you think about it there's 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 only ever a need for one ring announcer um for each event so i don't know a lot of ring announcers well. <clears throat> Which makes perfect sense, obviously. You know, they are doing the show, you know, you only need one ring announcer. But, you know, we talked about the departure from the WBS and how Vinny Jr. went about it and everything else, but how did you actually end up, I know you mentioned the AWA and the ESPN, but how did you actually end up in the NWA and working for WCW for those six years? Um, hmm. Well, I could see the writing on the wall when during uh, the last of my 11 years with the WWF. Um, when McMahon took the shares back from, or bought the shares back from Monsoon, and Monsoon lost his um, power, I could see that my, uh, my standing shrunk. So um, I knew that if I wanted to continue to announce that I needed to find someplace else to do it but in the years prior to that you know it was a territory and there were no other wrestling organizations there was the iwa that invaded years before but there was nothing serious it was wwf and that was it um but then when vince started going national then jim crockett and Vern Gagne, nwa awa got together and they decided to form pro wrestling usa they came into the northeast to challenge Vince to give him back some of what they were getting from him. Um, and so they knew me from, at first they, their local rep didn't want me to announce for them um, because I was so closely identified with um, with the WWF. But eventually, um, I guess they saw the value of having me on board. So I, I actually, for a short period of time, announced for the WWF, the AWA, and the NWA all at the same time. Wow. Um, 
and I never understood um, the other the other the problem that the invaders I'll use that word had in coming to the Northeast is that the McMahons had the large arenas tied up, so um, they couldn't they couldn't run a show in Madison Square Garden, they couldn't run a show um, um, in, in in Pittsburgh, you know, a lot of their arenas. And Baltimore was about the only one where um, the NWA was able to come. The Meadowlands was another one that they were able to come to. So I would announce the first week of the month for the WWF, and then the two weeks later I'd announce for the NWA, AWA, and then two weeks later, and, and I would go into the ring, and of course I'm representing the promotion, they're paying me, so I'm going to say they're the best in the world. And I thought to myself, um, the one thing that I bring to the table that makes me um, valuable is people believe what I say, that there were times when a main event wouldn't show up and I had to give the reason as to why and how the main event was going to change that night. And, And I thought, I'm ruining my credibility by coming in and representing everybody. And I can see the writing on the wall that WWF is going to, uh, I'm going to be phased out. So I just stopped going to WWF events. I never quit. I was never fired. I just stopped going. And um, and then shortly thereafter, AWA started their ESPN show. And, and I was off to the races again, started doing their pay-per-views and continued with the NWA in Baltimore and the Meadowlands. And then they eventually got into Boston. Um, we even did a show... At, at the time, it was called the Felt Forum, the, the smaller venue inside Madison Square Garden. Um, but they, the McMahons had contracts with the big buildings um, that would keep out any opposing wrestling organization. Um, I think it was, it was something like um, no wrestling organization can appear um, four weeks leading up to our date and two weeks following our date. And if they would come back every month, then no one else could get in. So, um, yeah, so that's, I forget the, your question, but that's what happened. That's that's how I transitioned. Yes, exactly. That's the transition part into WCW. Now, did you find it that people did think you were almost too synonymous with the WWF, or did you find the transition very easy and that you were able to, you know, create your own voice and be your own, you know, be your own GMC in WCW? Um, well, it it was always, um, it was always a plus to be recognized, but that was only in the Northeast. Um, when I started doing WCW and expanded outside of the area, um, I had just, I I didn't do this consciously, but I, I started all over again in creating an identity with people who lived outside of the Northeast because they didn't get the WWF broadcast. Um, I didn't, you know, I never thought about it. I just continued what I was doing. And, um, you know, people, I guess, uh, appreciated how I did what I did. Um, and so then I began forming bond and, you know, in, in cities like Jacksonville, Florida and Atlanta and, um, Baltimore. And yeah, I mean, it worked out. It, it just worked out. They, I just, they just, uh, took to me. And the other thing that was very helpful in WCW was 
very unlike, um, and it has also happened in AWA, very unlike the WWF. When I started with the AWA and then the NWA and WCW, the commentators started to refer to me by name. And so that elevates your position. Now you now you're looked at as being part of the team, and that, you know that was very helpful too. Um, you know Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone and Gordon Soley and um, the AWA guys. I really appreciated that. Um, you know because whatever I had established with the WWF, it was not through any kind of support from you know from the promotion. <clears throat> yes, you definitely were more, to me, more recognizable almost in WCW because they would always mention you and then, you know, Cornette would have that little quip you being like the world's most dangerous announcer. But a lot of things, a lot, or a lot of fans, excuse me, remember you for a very famous catchphrase and just curious about how it came about and where you got it from. The, this is Sting. When you started announcing Sting and you completely changed the way, you know, he had been announced before and obviously he was WCW's golden boy. How did you come up with that? Sting is a difficult word to um, uh, to boom because it's a closed ing. It's it's closed. Um, Flair is easy. Rick Flair, you know, your mouth opens and she just comes out. But you can lose the sound when you say, especially I'm old time. I mean, I'm old school. So I even I, I I boomed and I still do when I go out guest ring announcing. I boom when I announce. And um, so, therefore, I needed a running start to get to the word sting. So then I just thought, well, what can I say before sting? And um, that I just created, this is, this is sting. It was out of fear. I was just afraid <laughs> that if I just said sting, nothing would come out. <laughs> And I feel like it's so synonymous with you. Like, you know, they, they play uh, like an old video of Sting or something, and you hear, you know, this is Sting. I feel like that's so synonymous, and people remember that voice being attached to Sting. Is that cool, you know, to, to think back and look back? Like, people, you know, attach you with that wrestler. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. And and that applied to a few of the others. Um, and... One, um, when you tune into, um, let's just say, a weekly show that you that you like a lot, it doesn't have to be wrestling, it could be anything, there's certain things about the show that make you feel comfortable. There's certain things that are repetitive. Look at, look at the late-night talk shows. They have the same theme song every night. The guy comes out in the same way. He, he addresses the audience. He thanks the audience in the same way, and then he's off on his monologue. But everything up to that is the same. And there's a comfort in that, in repetition, repetition, repetition. So, and I always knew that. So, so when I created, um, when it, whenever it was that I created an introduction that was a little different, a little bit offbeat, or the following contest, not is set for, but the following contest, it is set for, <laughs> which is probably grammatically horrible, <laughs> but. Yeah. It's it's a little trademark. The Carnation Boutonniere, it's a trademark. When I first started, ring announcers didn't wear bow ties. So when I started, when I started, very few people in entertainment used their middle name or three names, Gary Michael Capetta. Um, so they were like little subtle things that set you apart. 
and then also these very comfortable repetitions that people came to expect and identify with you. And, um, yeah, so that that's really the theory behind it. But Sting was I just needed a, a you know, a running jump into Sting. And it's so, you know, ingenious that you say that. You know, the little subtle things that set you apart is so so true because people remember those those little things and and it's basically, you know, you're creating your own gimmick out there, you're creating your own brand. You're you know, GMC or Gary Michael Capetta, I think that's very you know, ingenious. But it's very not subtle. Only, it's very yeah. subtle, you know. Yep. Yep. And I feel like, you know, a lot of people remember you for being the ring announcer of WCW, but didn't you do a lot of things backstage as well? For a while, um, <clears throat> and I really had a good time doing this. For a while, I um, produced the market-specific um, interviews. You know, we're going to be in Baltimore um, this Saturday, and uh, I, had a, I had a really good time with that because... Being a ring announcer is not creative. <laughs> it's, hmm. it's it's repetition. And I have a pretty good creative side to me. So um, I remember once when El Gigante was uh, wrestling for WCW, um, we got to the taping, and I saw that he was going to be one of the people that was going to be giving doing interviews. And I asked the production people, if they had a um, uh, a sheet of plastic, and I asked them, could you go out and pick up? And it was it was October. It was like around this time of the year. And I I said, could you go out and and pick up some like smaller size pumpkins? And as he's he's doing his announcement, his promo, he's holding this pumpkin, and I forget. We may have put a face on it. I I don't remember. But I said to El Gigante, I said to him. At the end of this promo, I, with one hand, I want you to take it and I want you to squeeze it. And I, I, you know, and I told the camera people, zoom in on the pumpkin. And, and the idea was, this is like the guy's head and this is what's going to happen to him. I'm going to take my hand, I'm going to wrap it around his head, and I'm going to claw his head, and I'm going to just squeeze it. And all you heard at the end of the promo was drip, because we had plastic on the floor. And, um, I, yeah, I enjoyed doing that. For a while I did um, the event center, once again market specifics, but on camera. Um, that, that didn't work so well because they wanted me to do it in my ring announce voice. And like I said, I boom. And I'm not going – my voice and no one's voice is made to boom for eight hours a day. You know, it's just – that that didn't work out too well. I enjoyed doing it, and I would like to, at some point, see some video on what I did. I, I don't have any um, video of that. Um, I also did the Spanish edition for KCAL in Los Angeles. Um, WCW, it, it, it's a major independent, at the time, it was a major independent um, TV station in Los Angeles. And in order to for them to accept WCW, they insisted on having um, a, uh, an edition that was um, had Spanish commentators. And we didn't have Spanish commentators on staff, but I taught Spanish. I can get by with my Spanish. So I did the uh, commentating for that show. So, yeah, there were different things that I did behind the scenes. Jack of all trades in WCW. 
Well, I, I used to say to Jim Hurd, you know, all the time, I used to say to him, you know, like, I, I want to do something like a little bit more creative. I love what I'm doing, and I want to continue with what I'm doing. But I have a lot of downtime, too. I, and I don't, I, and I definitely don't want to work in the offices. That's That was something I didn't, had no interest in doing, which I had an opportunity to continue um, with them. But um, I, they, part of the deal would have been working in their offices, and I had no interest. Now, is that because of the ever-changing, you know, Jim Hurd's the boss, then Kip Fry, and then, you know, you got Bill Watts, and then Bishop, is that because there's too many changes going on, or you just didn't want to work in the office? I didn't want to work in a politically charged environment, regardless of who was the boss. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't, wasn't interested. And I also, I didn't want to move to Atlanta. I had just bought a, a property here, and... um but I understood when when I would do the Spanish edition of their shows, it was very low in their priority because it was just for one station. So they wouldn't know until the last minute when um, we were going to, you know, do it. And I would get last minute um, instructions to fly down to Atlanta. And I would take from Newark Airport, I would take the 10 a.m. flight, get to Atlanta around noon. I'd be in the studio, I'd finish up about three, I'd go back to the airport and I'd be home for dinner. <laughs> so that was hmm. kind of that was expensive for them to do. <clears throat> I had fun. I, I liked doing it, but um I, I understood they wanted someone I mean if I was gonna continue they wanted you know, of course then they went to these huge contracts. <laughs> but that's beside the point. I you know, I did once again, I didn't sell tickets, so I it wasn't. Um, I wasn't seen as someone that was valued at the kind of money that it was costing them. I was also making really good money, and I had no expenses. Um, I had a very, very sweet deal with them because I told them when I started, I know my personality, and I know that I need my space, and I'm not going to be able to travel with people always. I just can't do it. It just, I'm not going to last. So one of my agreements that was in my contract is that I traveled alone because it, they would not cover a rental car unless there were three people's names attached to it that worked for the company. And um, so I was, you know, totally free on, on the road. I, I would travel with some wrestlers sometimes, but I would, you know, get bored and I'd say, hey, Mick, do you want to travel with me? And they would love that because, um, I covered a lot of their expenses because they also paid for my hotel room. They also paid for my food. So I was getting performer pay and corporate um, perks. So it, it was sweet. Definitely a sweet deal. But, you know, you mentioned Jim Hur for a second there. What was WCW life under him? Was he as hated as, as you always hear? Yeah, he was. Um, like I said, though, I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the offices. Um, when I was traveling through Atlanta, I'd go in and visit people and or clear up something, you know, about an expense report or do something with contracts. Um, yeah, they, they, they really didn't. They, you know, well, he made some pretty, pretty um, bad decisions and didn't have a, a really good grasp of what, brought 
at the time the NWA to its uh, to its height. You know, he, he just wanted to he, he wanted to imitate McMahon, so he wanted to do a lot of silly things like the ding dongs. Huh. Um, you know that that was just nuts. It was it was just an antithesis to what the foundation of this this company was built on. And obviously, you know, as you were kind of like winding down WCW, Bischoff obviously would take over in around 93-ish. What was it like working under Bischoff? Because he was kind of steering that ship into a profitable direction under his regime. Um, Eric uh, didn't... um, And I guess, once again, it was looking... He was looking at McMahon's product, where time, the ring announce role on TV was um diminished and um yeah so he he didn't have a great appreciation for the role of a ring announcer and if you if you watch um it's 90 uh, end of 94 into 95 you'll notice that the commentators start they kill the ring announcer's mic and the commentators start are speaking the whole time, so you never hear the ring introductions. You hear the music, but you don't hear the ring introductions. So he he didn't have a, a high appreciation for what I did. Now, obviously, in '95, you Slam Marie would be your last show, and that was kind of WCW departure. How did you leave WCW? How did that all come about? That you left, and they kind of brought David Penzer in. Um, well, pretty much, uh, as, as I mentioned, they wanted me to move to Atlanta. They wanted me to work in the office. Yep. Um, and, and I, and I didn't want to do that. Um, you know, they weren't very, um, honest about things toward the end. Um, yeah, but that's okay. That's, that's how some people run their business. And, um, but that, whatever, I, my time had come, like I said, the, the, the guy that had, Eric Bischoff, who was the new head, undervalued what I did. So you put that together with the sweet deal that I had, and if I didn't value my position with the promotion, I would say I was being overpaid also. And uh, so it was just like a different perspective. And I could see it... uh, I was actually supposed supposed to end a year before because we had come to an impasse leading up to a pay-per-view in Philadelphia. And when my contract expired, um, I just stopped working. And they didn't expect that that was going to happen. And I don't know why they would think that, but um, um, there there was a a pay-per-view in Philadelphia. It was probably in, I'm going to guess in May. I think that's when my periods were. And um, leading up to that pay-per-view, there were a couple of house shows in Maryland. And uh, when I didn't show up for the first one, I got a call saying, Gary, where were you? Because I had, I never, I've never missed a, uh, a show in, in, in 21 years. I never missed a show. So, um, so I said to them, well, I'm not under contract anymore. Because, you know, they wouldn't talk to me about renegotiating. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's just another way to say you're not important. And um, so I said, so why should I show? 
So it wasn't until the morning, the Sunday morning of that pay-per-view, I think it was on a Sunday, could have been a Saturday, that they faxed a contract to me, and then I showed up at the pay-per-view, which was easy to do because I, I don't live far from Philly. Um, and I believe it was Ric Flair that spoke up for me. Um, and so they extended my contract for another year. Then we were heading to, uh, a year later, Disney MGM to, remember we used to do three months of TV in a, yeah. in a, in a week. Yeah. And um, so once again, I was out of contract. And Eric said to me, Gary, come, we'll talk about it at, down in Florida. We'll, we'll, um, we'll take care of things. Things will be okay. So I went, TV in the can that lasted them through August, and he refused to talk to me when we were down there. So um, then, then there was a, um, a, I think it was a pay-per-view in Dayton, Ohio, June of that year, which would have been 95. And Michael Buffer could not make it. So they called me and asked me if I would come out for that one night. Now, I thought that was kind of strange because Michael Buffer only did the main event. And they had David Penzer, and um, and I'm saying to myself, they're not showing a whole lot of uh, support for their new main ring announcer. And I, 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 I helped David when I left to um, not really negotiate his new contract, but just to smarten him up to things that he needed to look out for. Because I knew I was on my way out. I liked David, and so I, I tried to help him out. And... Um, so I, I just said to them, you have David. Yeah, yeah, but, but Eric thinks, you know, for this event, you know, David's never done one of these. And, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, well, David's going to start doing these. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of ridiculous because in three months, he, you know, you, he started Nitro, and David was great. He was fine. Um, so I said, um, sure, okay, I'll come in and do it. But you pay me the same money you're paying Buffer for the night. Ooh, they didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you're telling me that you want me to come in because Buffer can't make it, so pay me Buffer money. And um, they they wouldn't do it. They uh, they, they were willing to pay me uh, $3,000 to come in and do that show. And I turned them down because it wasn't Buffer money. Huh. Now, what do you think about a guy like David Penzer who was able to kind of take the reins and move forward into, you know, WCW's uh, biggest time of their company's uh, growth going through the Monday Night War, and David Penzer right smack dab in the middle of it. What did you think of uh, his progression? Um, you know, David, did a, he did a terrific job. Um, but once again, like at the end of my tenure, um, the role of the ring announcer was reduced. So I think that David doesn't get enough credit for what he did for them um because it was layered over by commentators and 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 just you know a, he had a, a diminished role as I did toward my the end of my tenure so it was it was difficult to uh for him to break through we had the opportunity to speak with him last year and uh very complimentary towards you and and being somebody that he could uh you know definitely uh, learn from, but I think that as you progressed through WCW, you know, you took on that veteran role, even in a ring announcer capacity, 
But, you know, when you have somebody who's trying to learn how to be a ring announcer or even just a broadcaster, what's, like, the first thing you tell them about owning their presence when they're in front of a group of people? Well, whenever anybody starts out on any, um, especially, like, a performing, could be a singer, could be an actor, an announcer, a wrestler, you're going to, there, there are certain things that you like from people that you've seen in that same role from the past. And what most people do is pattern themselves after someone or a combination of people. And then the next most important thing to do is just to get out and do it. And the more that you do it, the more you're going to refine, you, the better you're going to get, and you're going to refine your own style. And um, if you're lucky enough, to continue um, over a, you know, a period of time, you're going to gain your own identity. Um, and, and I think that's just how it works with any um, performance artist. It's a tricky world, and obviously broadcasting is completely different. I mean, when we think about even the medium of radio is nearly uh, an obsolete uh, way to make a great living. You can make a living, but just not... A great living, but one thing that I think is kind of interesting that I don't think we really touched on it yet, and that is, you know, covering both territories, the north, you know, quote, New York, WWF, and down south, WCW. How about the uh, the distinction between the fan bases? Because obviously, you know, the, the northeast definitely uh, always kind of keyed into uh, a lot of stuff going on in the business. Um, seemed like they were always uh, trying to get on the inside, and the Southern fans being maybe a little bit more respectful and really digging the actual, you know, that in-ring product. Uh, did you see a difference between the North and South fans, and do you have a preference of either one? I don't have a preference, but yes, you're going, you have different products. When I went from announcing WWF to, uh, which was the beginning of Hulkamania, to kick-ass Dusty Rhodes and Tully Blanchard and Ric Flair and Nikita Koloff. And, um, you have a, a very different product. I was going like from ballet to street fights. <laughs> and so just like if you have different bands, you're going to draw different... Um, Guns N' Roses didn't draw the same fan base that, you know, like a, a, a folk, like a James Taylor did. So, yeah, they were they were they were very different crowds, um, and I, you know I I enjoyed both of them for what they were. I was able to get into the day in and day out of the NWA product more, just because it was more exciting, it was more unpredictable, and it was crazier. Um, some of the, you know some of the things that they did. So and of course they got a different kind of a rise out of their fans than the WWF did. You know, um, WWF fans reacted, like, especially in that era, like to the music and to the lights, and not so much to the kick-ass wrestling, because it wasn't kick-ass wrestling. And the NWA fans were reacting to... Um, they both had pretty, pretty well-defined rivalries, but I would say, and I don't, I don't mean this as a pun, but... In the NWA, they were. It was raw. They were. It, they were raw kind of rivalries, like nitty gritty kind of things, you know. As opposed to, oh, he looked at you know Miss Elizabeth the wrong way, you know, or whatever. 
it was wow. He, he attacked him in the parking lot, <laughs> you know, with a baseball bat <laughs> that had you know barbed wire wrapped around it, and <laughs> you know, you just keep on going on and on and on and being crazy, you know, and the and the the, the triple tower of doom, and <laughs> you know, just the the on the scaffold matches, and you know, they were just spectacles that were very gritty. So yeah, you're gonna you have a different fan base just. In the same city, you would have a you know a different fan base because it has nothing to do with it being the Northeast and it being the South is what I, I guess my point. If you had presented a WWF product month in and month out in Charlotte, and you had presented an NWA product month in and month out at the Garden, you're going to draw you know different people based upon what you're presenting. Which is kind of funny because you're right. You'd see uh, Dusty Rhodes getting beat up in the parking lot by the Four Horsemen on NWA television, and yeah, you know, you had Miss Elizabeth getting carried away by uh, George Steele, or you know, uh, a thing of roses getting thrown in somebody's face. Is a little bit of a difference, but taking both of those territories, NWA, WWF, is there a guy that you saw in both places that either a got over in both places and it was not very shocking to you or one that was maybe vehemently hated in one and revered and loved in the other um to the to the your first point was Steve Austin you know Steve Austin was um extremely successful in WCW he became very successful in an entirely different way in WWF but remember um when uh, the McMahons brought him in, he was the ringmaster. So they didn't know what to do with him when he got there, and, and his character developed one way or the other. Um, so that that's you know he was uh, a tag champ. He was an, he was a singles champ in uh, WCW, and uh, was at the top, if not near the top of the card. And of course, you know we all know how he evolved when he was in WWF. Um, one interesting um, study would be The Undertaker, where um, I don't know if it shows the genius of McMahon or luck or a combination of the two, but WCW just didn't know what to do with Mark Calloway. And he was always super um, athletic, to see a guy that big walk, the, you know, the ropes, the top rope, and um, but he didn't connect with the people because he had no personality in the ring. He was a very personable guy to travel with, but in the ring he had no facial expressions to support what he was doing or what was being done to him. Well, what more perfect character than a dead man? <laughs> You know, could you assign to someone like that? Um, so that, that, I thought that was a very interesting um, evolution, I guess. And it's just that WCW didn't know what to do with him, and um, he obviously became the phenom in WWF, WWE. As we start to hit the wind-down button here, you've been you know, in the wrestling business for a very long time, you've seen, you know, guys like Bruno, Hogan, like you just mentioned, Steve Austin, and the other guys like that. Do you have a favorite 
you know, favorite ever that you were involved in or maybe, maybe some favorite wrestlers? Like, what was your kind of, your personal, like, golden era that you enjoyed the most when you were announcing? I um I really can't, you know, assign one one period to being my favorite. Um, there were favorite times for different reasons. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, Bruno was, you know, was, was my number one. So um, there was there was a three match series at the Philadelphia Spectrum when Bruno came back to get his title back from Superstar Billy Graham, and it was three sellouts in a row. Those were that was a very exciting uh, time for me. And obviously, I started there, so you know my first um, like just like learning the inside of a of a business over years. That's an exciting thing too. I'm kind of a curious kind of guy, so you know it was just interesting to to figure it all out. It, it took years to do it, but I figured it all out. On the other side, if you look at the NWA and WCW, another three match um, sequence between Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair. I mean, that was very exciting too. I mean, it was just exciting for a different reason. You know, it was the when I used to announce our champion. I always emphasize the word the. He is the world heavyweight champion. And that was, you know, like a, a very subtle swipe at the competition. Um, and that's the feel that you had when Ric Flair was the champion. Because of, because of who he is and, and also because of the lineage of the NWA. Um, you know, doing the first ESPN show, uh, wrestling show, um, that was pretty cool too, because pro wrestling had never been on um, a "quote unquote" legitimate sports um, outlet like that. Um, you know, doing live performances, uh, re- uh, announcing at Royal Albert Hall in London—that was pretty cool. You know, they're they're just uh, different things at different times for different reasons. Do you have a favorite guy to announce? Like I mentioned, you know, the this is Sting, which mean, is kind of synonymous with you, but do you have a favorite guy that you just loved announcing? Because, like, you almost mentioned Ric Flair before. He's just perfect announcing. Is there somebody you can think of? Mm, not really. No. I like, once again, there are, you know, different people at different times. And you have to remember, you're you're talking about over 30 years. And if, if you just think of the tens of thousands of people that I introduced, it was... Um, you know, there, that, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot to to unpack there. Oh yeah, thirty years, uh, and definitely, I'm sure. You know, if you can still get the book, Body Slams, and you can definitely check out the story, and hopefully, uh, you added some chapters to it. We would love to hear even more added to it. Perhaps uh, a second Body Slams. Now, have you had that? That uh, feeling to do a second body slams rather than just revise it. Have you had a, a, any kind of uh, you know thought of maybe just doing a full blown second edition? Um, no, because um, I had to be very careful when I was writing it. Uh, first off, I wanted it to be readable to people who were not wrestling fans, also, um, just to broaden my um, my market. Um, but. I had to be careful because things that seem interesting or cool, uh, sometimes you put them down on paper and they just aren't all that amazing. 
so I, I gave you all my best shots in, in this body slams. Um, and what I'm doing with the stage show is making the stories from body slams come to life. And, I, and I'm adding some other things also. So that's my way of expanding um, my offering of, of the book is bringing it to a stage and doing a, a one-man show with it. And really, uh, if you think about it, you were kind of at the forefront of that one-man show uh, boom. You know, there's a lot of one-man shows now. Uh, there's, there's countless guys that, that can do it. Uh, but you were definitely one of the first to get out there and do the one-man show. Uh, and definitely, uh, I would say, uh, it's, it's a story that needs to be heard. And we appreciate you coming on tonight to tell us. But please, share with the fans and listeners of the Two-Man Power Trip of Wrestling just where they can find out if, A, the show is coming to their neck of the woods, or where they can find out more about still being able to get the book and find out the rest of the story of Gary Michael Capetta. Okay, well, there are a few things. Um, Facebook, uh, you can find me at GMC for real. That's the number four. So GMC number four, uh, R-E-A-L. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.